Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Dry shade gardening is often a challenge in creating a successful garden. Such conditions require careful plant selections and insights. Hayes Jackson believes there is a plant that loves that spot no matter how bad or how difficult you think it is. Hayes is a self-professed plant geek, urban regional agent with the Alabama Cooperative Extension System and director of the new Longleaf Botanical Gardens in Anniston, Alabama. He loves exploring local native woodlands, the hill country of Texas, and internationally for the next fascinating plant. We delve into personal gardening stories, favorite plants, and future plans for the new Longleaf Botanical Gardens, along with a deep dive into the world of horticulture. Hayes shares his valuable insights, practical experiences, and unique philosophies of gardening. In this episode 145, Creating Dry Shade Gardens and Other Adventures at the Longleaf Botanical Gardens with Hayes Jackson on the Garden Question Podcast. Hayes, where does a gardener facing dry shade challenges start in creating a wonderful garden? Basically, it's plant choices. I think when people start dealing with dry shade, there is a limited number of things available in the nursery market or in our own minds. We think of Acuba and Mahonia, but there are so many other wonderful plants that will give you a good selection of foliage color, foliage texture, and just something that blooms, grows, and has a different seasonal value throughout the year. And I think that's important. For folks that don't know, what is a typical dry shade garden challenge? Being an extension agent, I answer lots of questions, so I get a lot of calls around Anniston. We're a hilly terrain, a lot of wooded terrain, so a lot of people do have natural gardens, or at least maybe in their back area, they deal with a lot of trees. Those trees tend to sap up a lot of the moisture. If you're in a woodland situation, you're dealing with dry shade. Especially like me, I'm in an old growth forest. I've got 100, 110 foot trees. They just really suck the moisture out of the ground. So it's not just the shade, it's that dryness that gets from competing with those trees. Does it tend to be a rocky terrain or is there anything that we can do supplementing soil? A lot of times it's very rocky when you get into the Ridge and Valley province of Alabama. If you're in the Piedmont province or if you're in the Appalachian Plateau, you're going to deal with rocky soils. As you go further south, you'll still have the big trees. It's a sandier soil, but your soil becomes drier. A lot of times it's just a woodland garden. You're competing with those trees. And it's always amazing to me when I see people have a landscape, they'll have a tree and they want to put a bed around the base of that tree. That is a lot of times 
one of the harder areas to get things to grow because it's competing not only the densest shade around the trunk of that tree, but also the roots that are there as well. I guess on average you're getting about 50 inches of rain a year, but should we be supplementing the water in those areas where we have the dry shade? Most definitely, especially when you're planting. What I like to do is try to go with the flow. The fact that if you're planting underneath these trees and you know that they're going to be competing with those roots, use plants that are naturally adapted to drier situations. What would be some of the plant options that we'd have in a drier situation? Just pick your area to start with, an 8A growing region. The one thing I always look is what's growing natively. That's always a great route to go. Things that grow in our native woodlands where they're under the canopy, I think of things like maple leaf viburnum, sweet shrub, or a Christmas fern. We don't think of ferns as being drought tolerant, but gosh, that's a really underutilized native fern that is great for dry shade. The other thing I do is I look at other climates or other areas of the country that experience dry periods. My mind always goes to the Texas Hill Country, where they're known for their droughts. The climate there is warmer than central Alabama, but the plants do well. I grow things like their native Texas mountain laurel, which has beautiful wisteria-like blooms that are fragrant. Utilizing things from that area that will tolerate the dry shade. What's a more unusual plant that you like to use in the dry shade? One thing that I've discovered that's doing really well is a hardy Schefflera from Taiwan. It's Schefflera delavei. I've planted it in a couple areas of my garden, and it's turning out to be really tough. When garden visitors come, they recognize it as a Schefflera, which is typically a house plant. I love seeing their reaction that I'm able to grow this tropical plant. I've been amazed how tough it is. We've had some cold, we've had drought, and of course it takes the heat of our summer as well. It's one of my favorite plants in the garden right now. This is not a houseplant chiffalera, is this a different... They've recently divided and it's got a new genus name, but most people would still know it as chiffalera. And it looks very much like the houseplant. It just doesn't get as tall, it's more bushy. It has beautiful fragrant blooms in the late summer, fall. It gives you that nice tropical foliage texture, which I love in the garden. What would be some good ground covers we could be successful with? You can't beat liriope. It is one of those old common, it's in every landscape, but the way I see it always used, people tend to put it in a row or line things with. I love to see it as a sweeping natural mass. What was so interesting, I spent time in China collecting plants over the years. I like to see how they use plants in their landscapes. They often used it almost like an understory turf. It gave you that appearance. Of course, they would plant it underneath in big sweeps, and it was absolutely stunning. And then you get those little purple flowers. I love the clumping mm-hmm. varieties much better. You can really control it in a garden situation. That's been one that I always go to. The other one I love, too, is a ground cover is Aspidistra for dry shade. There's so many different forms and varieties available now. You can't beat the common cast iron plant. I like the variegated ones too because in the shade, I love to see variegation brighten up a darker corner of the garden. It really does that. I guess I'd have to throw in rhodia too, which is the nippon lily, which is another good one that I utilize all through my garden where I feel like I need something to stabilize a little slope. My whole garden is a slope. I have some slopes that are more steep than others. I like to utilize it as a filler 
if I need something that don't have anything growing there, I can just divide it and throw another piece in the ground and it just takes off and does well with neglect. Any other bulletproof plants we could use? The cephalotaxis, known as the Chinese plum use, are wonderful. They give you a little more finer texture with those needle-like leaves. I always go to even more of our natives. The Alabama croton and the Alabama snow wreath are two shrubs that take dry shade in my garden and are happy, never have a pest problem. I love croton in the fall. It gives you that little bright orange leaf change. It's not like the whole plant turns, but you get this sporadic, just almost neon orange. With the Alabama snow wreath, about early March, you're getting bloom when I'm just begging for more blooms in the garden after winter. I do not like winter. I hate cold weather. I'm ready for spring right now. (laughs) So anything that blooms (laughs) in December, January, February is in my garden. I'm all about winter blooms. We've talked about a blooming sequence throughout the whole year. Could you talk some about that? That's one of my garden mantras that if you have a garden... You got to have something blooming all the time. It's easy to do. It's just utilizing the plants. I love camellias and the fact that I have, gosh, 450 varieties of camellias in my garden. They start blooming in late August, early September with the tea camellia and then the, some of the other species camellias like tea oil, the camellia oleifera, then your sasanquas and your japonicas and then the reticulatas. And I can get them going through April and sometimes even early May. That covers a lot of color in the winter. The other thing I love is quince. And Mm. people think of quince, it's an old-timey plant. There's a lot of different forms. There's dwarf forms and the standard shrub forms. We usually think of those as a sun plant, but I've discovered a lot of things will grow and bloom in shade just fine. If it takes shade, it goes in shade in my garden because my sun space is just so precious to me. I don't have a lot of sun space. Anything that will take shade will go. So quince, they will bloom usually January, February, March. You get a lot of nice bloom from those in the cooler months. Side story on a quince is my dad grew up on a farm in Randolph County around Woodland. They had a quince. He said people would come from miles around just to see that quince bloom in the unusual fruit. Is it the tree one that has the big oblong fruits? Yeah. Okay, yeah, there's a tree quince, and there's also the flowering quince. Both of them are tough, and I've got both in my garden. Now, the tree quince being in the shade doesn't set a lot of fruit or bloom as well for me, but the bark on it is beautiful. It has an exfoliating Mm -hmm. bark, but another good plant for shade. What are some textures or color combinations do you like to put together? I love big foliage. I think foliage texture to me, is what catches people's eye. I love the tropical plants like the bananas, the elephant ears, the palms that have the huge leaves. I'm just mesmerized by those. I think that grand texture really catches our eye. Then you offset that with finer texture things. I think texture is so important in the garden that you have opposing textures. So it creates that interest, that contrast that people like to see. That's what catches your eye. I just like big texture. I wish I could grow gunnera. It's also known as dinosaur food. I've Mm -hmm. traveled to Chile where it grows just to see it in the wild, and those leaves get eight, nine feet across. It's just incredible, but unfortunately, it doesn't do in our climate. I would grow anything like that if I could. I tried. 
<laughs> I even dried it in a greenhouse just to keep it in the greenhouse in the summer by the evaporative cooler. It still didn't last. Now, one plant you said there that surprised me was palm. Oh, yeah. I don't think of palm as being a hardy, good plant for shade. And even in our region, because you and I are pretty much on the same latitude. And, and I don't see palms. My first gardening memories are in Naples, Florida, and I was three years old. It was a new subdivision, and I begged for palm trees. I have a picture of me at three years old sitting with my legs folded back, which I can't sit like that anymore, (laughs) planting two palm trees in front of our house in 1970 in Naples, Florida. I loved palms as a three-year-old. It was my first really dive into horticulture as a kid. We moved to central Alabama after that. We lived actually in Montgomery. Our neighbor had a big pendo palm, and I used to go stand under it (laughs) just because I love being (laughs) under a palm tree. I had a landscape company, and every design I did always had a palm tree. It was like my signature. If you look in Alabama and Georgia, we have some wonderful native palms that are actually dry shade tolerant. They take sun, they take wet, they take dry. The needle palm is probably to me one of the most useful palms. It's great in rain gardens. It's great as a foundation plant. I like them in a little bit of shade because the texture is a little more loose and open, a little more elegant looking. Then we have sable minor, the dwarf palmetto, and it's native here around Anniston. Now, I don't think it gets quite up to Atlanta, but in the Coosa River Valley, It goes all the way up to Cherokee County, Alabama, southwest of Rome, Georgia. They're tough, hardy, and native, so they don't have an issue with cold. I like to push the limits, too, and grow some of the palms that are not supposed to grow here. I do that as well. What would be some that are not supposed to grow here that you have success? And how do you have that success? I have a little secret. I discovered this in 1989 when we had the Christmas freeze. It got down to four degrees in Anniston, and I had Christmas lights on my palm trees in my garden. I said, well, it can't hurt. I covered the palms with some blankets with the Christmas lights underneath, and it saved them. They just needed that little bit of heat to not get damaged. Now, I'm growing a lot of the palms at Longleaf Botanical Gardens. We have some Zone 9 palms. We have different types of date palms in Washingtonia. And when it gets down below 20 degrees or 18 degrees, we wrap some lights around the trunk and wrap some blankets and throw a big sheet of plastic or a plastic bag over them and plug them in. They're able Mm. to pull through. We do that with sagos too. Of course, Mm. sagos do quite well here, but every once in a while we'll get a a winter that can kill them back or they can get burned. You just put a little bit of heat under there and a little blanket, they'll do fine. I didn't think LED bulbs, Christmas lights, which that's what you mostly find now, put out a lot of heat. Is that what you're talking about? Are you talking about the old school? We've got to go old school here because the LED don't produce the heat. That's the thing is using the old school lights. I have used a light bulb before. Mm -hmm. I covered a date palm with a light bulb, and that was in, gosh, I think that was in 89 too. (laughs) We had those Arctic winds, and it blew my cover over. The palm caught fire. The water was frozen. I was trying to stomp it out. And if you've ever tried to stomp a date palm that's got spines three, four inches long, it's not fun. I learned my lesson then. Just a slight amount of heat. You could get that heat with a heavy mulch on a small plant. 
it's just not a lot of heat to keep them from cold damage. The thing about where we are, the cold is usually short term. It's just one or two nights that it gets cold enough to really hurt things. If you can provide that minimal protection, they may not die. It may be damaged, but this saves them from being set back. If you're a plant geek like me and you love growing these things, you're willing to do that. And I don't take vacations during Christmas and to Valentine's because I, I need to be here if I need to cover things. Of course, if you have greenhouses, you know how it's like having a baby. Something can go wrong with those. I just keep an eye on the weather, too. I guess you could use heat strips on that, too. Like you wrap your pipes. Can you do that? Well, I've thought about that, and I've actually talked to a electrician about that. And that I was trying to ask, how much heat does a strand of 50 Christmas lights, not the LED, put out compared to the heat tape? I've got to get a little engineering involved, but that seems like that would be a better choice. I think the other thing, too, is I don't know how weatherproof the pipe wrap would be. That's mm-hmm. something I'm looking into, especially as our palms get bigger. We've got some 20-foot date palms now. <laughs> it, <laughs> it gets a little harder and a little tougher. Then Christmas lights are getting harder to find. I'd love to get up with someone with a little electrical knowledge and be able to produce something that would help us. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's a... Albert yeah. Electron Engineering question. That sounds <laughs> <I> like that. <laughs> All right. You said something about being a plant geek. How do you become a plant geek? Oh, my gosh. I look back, and I can remember the day that I said to myself, I like plants. Growing up, I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I was 12 years old. We were living in Talladega at that time. I'm walking through the woods, and I found what I thought then was a ficus tree growing in the woods. I was like, what is this houseplant doing growing out here? I was fascinated. Turns out it was a Chinese wax leaf ligustrum. Now that I look back on it, I remember sitting there touching the plant and thinking, I like plants. I really do. That was a kind of an epiphany I had at 12. I was digging up plants all the time as a kid. My mom still talks about when we go on vacations, how many hours she waited in the car as I perused nurseries and spent my money on plants instead of what most normal kids would buy things with. It's innate. I don't know. You're born with it, I think. You just love being around plants and growing things. (laughs) Is it true that there is a plant for every place? That's my thing. As an extension agent, I get lots of calls and they'll say, I've got this going on. I've got this. There's gravel right there. There's no hose. I can't water this. It's full sun. There's a plant that loves that spot. You just got to know about those plants. That's why I grow everything and anything. And I use the excuse it's for the betterment of my job. And I can give people more info. If I've grown every variety of camellia and know which ones bloom best in central Alabama. I think about like right now, I go outside. We've had a lot of freezes. It's been a lot of frosty mornings. And you may camellia. It's still blooming like crazy. So that one has really impressed me over the past few years, how well those blooms take a frost. It's a nice, cool little camellia. So I'm like, well, you live in a frost pocket? You want a camellia that blooms? You maize the one. Mm-hmm. Or if you've got a you've got a little hell strip in front of your house that's is dry and gravelly and rocky and you need something that you want to plant that has some color, some of the sedums are wonderful. There's a plant that's going to love that spot, no matter how bad it is or how difficult you think it is. There's a plant that'll grow there. Tell us about Longleaf Botanical Gardens and the parts you play in it. 
I tell people that I ran out of room in my garden, so I started a botanical garden, <laughs> and it's true. But actually, as county agents, we're supposed to get out in the community and see what the community needs are. One of the things that I found talking with people in Calhoun County is that they wanted a botanical garden. We have this wonderful museum. It's the Anniston Museum of Natural History. What we did is we started planning things. We pulled out the nandinas, we pulled out the cherry trees, and pulled out the iliagnus. We started planting some unusual things, including some of the palms. There was a courtyard there. I actually volunteered at this museum when I was 14 years old, so back in 1983. And I planted a banana tree there, and that banana tree was still there. <laughs> Even as a 14-year-old, I knew that courtyard was special because it's surrounded by concrete faces southeast. It's two stories. And we still have banana trees. Here we are, what, January? And I still have green bananas in these protected courtyard areas. So I knew it was a little cool spot to grow some tropical things. We started growing things there. And I had a group of volunteers, a lot of master gardeners that came and we met one day a week and planted things. We'd also propagate things and have a plant sale. We learned that people would come every week to see the gardens because the gardens would constantly change. There would be something new blooming, whereas the museum exhibits, they change, but not that often. So we realized it was a good thing and people wanted it. There was an adjacent facility there that was the Linlock Community Center, which was a gym and a swimming pool. And the city moved that and we eventually took over that building. That's our Longleaf Hall. We have 125 acres now to grow and expand. Wow. And there's an additional Berman Museum, which is Museum of World History. Around that building, the soil is really bad and dry. So that's our xeriscape garden area. We grow a lot of xeriscape things that take dry. The museum is the tropical courtyard. And then we have some trails that have native plants. So it's just evolved from that. Hmm. So how long is when did it officially become a botanical garden? Officially, we got the keys to the building on 10-10-10, and we picked that date so I could always remember, like the fertilizer, <laughs> October 10th, <laughs> 2010, the city gave us that $2.5 million facility, and we declared ourselves official botanical garden. Mm. So, And since then, we've raised, we raised quite a bit of money for a master plan. And we have the Carbo Plan, which is the Carbo Group out of Alexandria, Louisiana. We had focus groups and got a master plan to work with, and we're going from there. So if you're driving between Atlanta and Birmingham, you need to stop in Aniston and visit, right? Right. That's the midway point, and there's a Starbucks, and <laughs> get off the <laughs> interstate there and come visit. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? My big thing is right plant right place and utilize more plants there's so many wonderful things and plants out there that are underutilized what i see so much is that people look at their neighbors and see what they planted and they plant the same thing i've even gone into neighborhoods and every house had the same two trees planted in the front they used nettle oak which is a neat tree but your landscape should reflect your environment and it should reflect your personality it should reflect your needs. I think we tend to take it as just two trees, some lawn, and a foundation planting. 
but there's so much more to it than that. My biggest thing now is less lawn. I think we do too much lawn in America. I have a nine acre garden and a nine minute lawn. I can cut it in nine minutes <laughs> and that's with a weed eater. I wow. embrace the clover. I embrace the creeping Charlie. I call it really my meadow. Do more natural areas and use a bigger palette of plants. That's really a lot of education. And I guess that's what as extension agents we're supposed to do. But I've been going against the grain a little bit because I know when we think of extension, we think of turf. I'm anti-turf. People need lawns if if it suits what what you do and you've got dogs or kids and whatever, sure. But do we need it front and back and does it have to be the whole? I just think a little less lawn and a few more plants. The challenge with beds to me is how do you maintain them? Because it seems like nature's always wanting to take those beds back. Do you have any tricks or things you like to do? Because you're talking about a good bit more bed space, but pine trees still pop up and different things like that. How do you overcome those invasive weeds or the things you don't want in that natural garden? I get people calling me. They want no maintenance or low maintenance. Mm -hmm. Low maintenance is letting it go back to the wild. (laughs) You're going to have to do some maintenance. I think it's so much easier to have a more natural area. This is what I did when my parents built their house. They built a one-level house because they were going to be there to retire. They didn't want a big lawn to take care of. And what did they do? They bought a double lot. (laughs) So (laughs) one of the few double lots in the subdivision. What I did is... I ended up planting trees. We did a few shrubs underneath. I encouraged them to collect and compost their leaves, create those mulch areas. We put a lot of it into natural, and there's just pools of grass. I had a ball doing their landscape because when they come in those new subdivisions, they took out most all the trees. They had full sun, so a lot of the things that I had in pots that I couldn't find a place to plant in my garden went in their garden. It's worked out. You hit the nail on the head. The maintenance thing, I have to really watch with my mom is trying to maintain that. It's water oaks that come up Mm -hmm. in the plants. You do have to be vigilant on that. You keep it mulched. It's not so bad, but she couldn't mow, especially it's on a slope. She has the mowings hired out, but she can get out there with her loppers. She loves doing that at 83. Well, what garden myth would you like to smash? Hmm. I've always said... Pink and orange go great together. (laughs) I love color. I look back to one time I was doing a talk and I said something about my garden is a vomit of color. And I was like, wait a minute. I meant to say riot. (laughs) I love color in the garden. I see a lot of people just doing whites and blues or whites and purples. Don't be afraid to use color. To me, color is exciting. And then combine it with those big leaf textures The biggest compliment I get from people that come and visit my garden is they always say, I feel like I'm in another country. I want them to feel like they're not in the Appalachian foothills of central Alabama. That's the biggest compliment I get because that's my objective is to really give people a feeling of being somewhere different. So don't be afraid to use color. Don't be afraid to use texture. And don't be afraid. I know we look at zone maps. I think zone maps are a great thing, and they are the worst thing. 
because it sometimes people really get limited by what the book says they can grow. And, and I've got perennial philodendrons growing in my garden and there's some growing around Aniston that are huge and happy. That texture is fantastic. I've always loved seeing people amazed by what we can actually grow beyond what we think we can grow. Now, you've told us one of your earliest garden memories with a palm tree that you planted in Florida. Do you have another one you'd like to share? I do. I remember in Florida, too. Three years old, I had a garden on the side of the house. I remember eating a plum and I saved the seed. I ate an orange. I saved all the seed and I was planting these things on the side of the house. You can't grow plums in Florida, but the orange trees would grow. They probably wouldn't have done well planted a foot from the foundation of the house. <laughs> My parents let me do what I like doing. If I go somewhere and I need a memento or a souvenir, it's always a plant. I bring mm -hmm. seeds back in my pocket, seeds in my suitcase. But that's my earliest memory is enjoying and the excitement that you get when you plant that seed and you see something sprout. Still today, I plant seed and I get overjoyed when I see them growing and that hasn't changed. Well, tell us a story about one of those seeds you've planted. I know every seed has a story. And every plant does. So you got a favorite story about one yeah. of your souvenirs? When we moved from Talladega to Anniston, we were going to build a house and it took a while. My parents actually divorced. So we moved in with my grandmother and grandfather that were just a mile away from where I live now. I collected a seed off this tree that I just thought was the coolest tree. It looked really tropical and it had green bark and it had these huge leaves. Turns out it was a Chinese parasol mm. tree, and I planted that seed on the side of my grandmother's house, and it grew. It was about 10 feet tall, and we finally got our house, got the, everything situated, and I dug up that tree at 11 years old and took it to my present-day garden and planted it. Well, it's been awful. <laughs> <laughs> every seed germinates i have to weed those things but i could not dare cut it down because i planted that when i was 11 and i'm 58 and it's still there the sad thing nature determined its fate a couple years ago we had hurricane zeta and hurricane zeta the eye went right over my neighborhood literally the eye wall I lost so many trees and it blew the whole top out of that tree. It was 30 feet tall, took the whole top and that top landed on my greenhouse, crushed my greenhouse. I still haven't had the heart to cut it down. <laughs> it's got this big green trunk and it's got one limb out the side. Of course, it doesn't produce the seedlings and flowers like it did. So it's nice, but it's going to have to come down from that one seed and having those years to watch that thing grow and a learning experience that sometimes you're young and dumb <laughs> and you don't know <laughs> and your tastes change too. I need more shade trees, but I just did not have the heart to cut it down. I still give it a little pat on the trunk when I walk by. I feel like it's a friend because I've had it for so long. <laughs> Why did you decide to pursue horticulture as a profession? Oh, I like plants. <laughs> <laughs> that was 12, and, I, and we were an Auburn family. Auburn's our school, all my, my uncle, my mom, and my cousins, and we all go to Auburn. And, and I started out in landscape architecture. 
because I thought that was the thing with plants. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I got through and I realized you only take three plant classes. So I switched yeah. majors to landscape design and ornamental horticultures, but I knew I would be going into something with horticulture and plants from that day of wandering in the woods and finding that fake ficus tree. I loved it. I absolutely loved the classes. The Once I got into horticulture, I got to work with Dr. Freeman down there, who was the Trillium guy and with plant taxonomy and Dr. Ponder, you know, if you're in Auburn horticulture, Dr. Ponder and his plant ID test, which that was right up my alley. And I got to intern at Monrovia Nursery out in California. I was, I think, the only student that made a perfect score. We had to do a plant ID test every week that we were out there. I even got all the bonuses. So I think I had 103 average on the class test for plant ID. <laughs> I was a plant geek then and just loved being immersed in horticulture. Do you have a funny garden story you could tell us? Oh, gosh. I, I do garden tours, and I don't now because I still have so many trees down from Hurricane Zeta, and I've got to get all that cleaned up. And I'm just, I don't dare allow a tree service to come and clean it up because I know they would do more damage. But I used to do garden tours. I'm also a dog person. I love dogs, and I love big dogs. I had a garden tour, I think from Atlanta uh, a few years ago. I had a Great Dane kind of puppy, but he was a puppy, mm -hmm. but he's still big. And we were doing the garden tour. One of the ladies that came on the tour wore high heels. I tell people, I live on a mountainside and it's steep where you're hiking in the woods and mountains. She had this scarf around her neck that had these little fur balls on it. And my dog was just enamored by those little fur balls on her scarf and we're walking through. He's normally pretty well behaved, but all of a sudden he decided he had to have those little fur balls and he jumped up and she stepped back and took two steps back and fell butt first in my water lily pond. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. Oh gosh, but I've learned, I've got to be more careful in these garden tours and having Great Danes around. She was pretty good sport about it. I understand it was wet and muddy. <laughs> Water lilies are, they, they don't smell great in that soil. Uh, but yeah, I always think about the garden tour. I guess it's funny now that I look back, but it was surely embarrassing. How do big dogs in gardens work? Because that seems to be counterintuitive. It does. And I get that question a lot. The thing is, right now, my dogs are probably in the bed. They're house dogs most of the time, so they're not out in the garden. But gosh, yeah. there's nothing better to garden with your little garden buddies. I've had Great Danes since I was in college. Right now, I have two. Just adopted another rescue. I've got three rescues right now. Two of them are Great Dane mixes, and they're just absolutely wonderful. I love having them out in the garden. I have the grass areas are for the dogs to frolic. That's what I always say. Mm. They can do a little bit of damage. I planted a Franklinia. You know how rare and special they are. Yeah. Yeah. And I went inside to get a drink of water and I looked at the door and my Great Dane had that Franklinia in his mouth. It brought it back to me. <laughs> They're wonderful. I, I find that a lot of plant people are dog people and I certainly am in that group, but I couldn't. I, I couldn't do without dogs. And even though I've got all these rare and special plants, I actually, you can teach a dog out of the bed. They know. Uh -huh. And I used to say, get out of the beds and they would get out. So. <laughs> well, 
Wow, that's pretty cool. What's the most valuable advice that someone has given you that you still use today? I have to think about that. I go back to, I've had so many wonderful clients that you've developed these relationships as an extension agent. I've been working here since 1996. I've got a couple of clients and one was Miss Peggy. Apparently Miss mm-hmm. Peggy went to school one day and took cupcakes. The teacher said, Miss Peggy's coming to bring cupcakes. And all the students thought she said Miss Piggy. So they thought <laughs> Miss Piggy was coming. And then somehow that name stuck. So she went by Miss Piggy. So Miss Piggy, <laughs> the th- one thing that she taught me is, and I think you'll ask any gardener, is how important it is to share plants, to share ideas. She passed away. She had cancers a few years ago. But I look back and just the friends that you get in gardening, the information you share and the plants that you share. Miss Piggy is just one of them. I've had several through the years that were clients of extension that become really good friends. They depend on you for information, but I learned a lot from them as well. Because mm-hmm. everybody's dealing with something different. And we used to joke, there's that chemical dipel, and she used to call it mm-hmm. dipple just to make me laugh. <laughs> Every time I see dipel, I think of Miss Piggy and call it dipple. She was the one that talked about using a BT and some things. She was a good gardener. Sometimes we think people that are gardeners all or professional gardeners, but I have learned so much from people that just garden because they have a passion for it. They're not trained. They didn't go to school for it. They just love it. And they have such a valuable input of information. That's what I've picked up over the years to that. You can learn horticulture from anybody that has the passion to do it. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? It amazes me. I want to research more is the importance of soil fungus. I've always heard if you're growing lady slippers, orchids, the mycorrhizae and all that, but how much more important it really is and how much we don't know. The communication between, I'm seeing things about how plants respond in a forest. PBS is like my favorite thing because I've always been curious, but they see plants that if a bug bites the plants, they can change their hormones. There's so much that we don't know. How much of it is chemically done by plants that we just don't understand. That's the part that I'm constantly learning and I still don't know, but I am so excited to learn more about it. How plants will always look at things like osmanthus when you grow an osmanthus from seed how spiny it is Mm -hmm. then as it gets big it loses those spines so those spines are protection from animals that want to chew on it but if a deer nibbles on it it will produce those spines again on the recurring growth and how does it know how to do that that's what's fascinating there's just i could watch BBC programs on that for from here on out. Yeah, I think there's more to learn out there than we already know today. Exactly. And I want to learn. I want to know it all and mm-hmm. hear about it. That's the one area that I think that is more new to horticulture. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that we're really seeing how plants were related, how plant families have changed from when I was in school and 
how we're seeing what plants are actually truly closer related and how they fit Mm -hmm. together. That's the other aspect I'm learning too. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Planting too much. (laughs) (laughs) I overdid it. I created a monster. I really (laughs) did. And and on top of that, I'm just now 40 something years later learning how to edit the garden. And I still have problems. I break off something and I'm going to root it. I dig up something. Mm -hmm. I can't put it on the compost pile. I'll find it a home. So that's been my problem is planning too much and not being able to. And that's why I guess I have nine acres and and maintain it by myself. (laughs) And of course, I was, again, young and dumb and created a garden that really all the trails started out as dog trails in the woods. I really didn't create good access. So if I could go back, I would do better on a master plan and have more access because once you turn 58 and you're trying to plant a eight foot B and B tree at the bottom of your property, (laughs) you can't use a wheelbarrow on any normal day because your property is too steep. It just keeps rolling down the hill. I didn't plan that well, (laughs) but I'm still managed now. That's my thing is I love working in the garden. I don't mind getting dirty. I don't mind the work because I love doing it. That's my gym. I try to get out. I've moved enough rock to fill an Olympic pool, but I'm always clearing trees, moving rocks, planting, digging holes, dragging hoses, and it's my exercise, and I love it. We've talked about your garden a lot, but I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have joy. Joy. I don't even have to think about it. As much as a monster it is, it brings me joy to be able to walk under trees I grew from seed to see camellia plants taller than me that I spent my hard-earned three ninety nine on <laughs> at Kmart in <laughs> 1987. I remember I bought four camellias for three ninety nine, and that was expensive for one-gallon plants back then. Azaleas were $1.99, but I paid $3.99 for four camellias. And now they're 12, 15, 18 feet tall. The plants are like your kids or your friends because you've had them for so long and they bloom every year. And it just gives me joy to see those things grow. Then the other thing is to be able to share that with other people. I do cuttings and propagation, but it's all about the joy that you get when you're in your happy place. What did your garden teach you in the last year? We had that polar plunge. It teaches a little bit of humility because you can't fight Mother Nature sometime. We hadn't had a freeze like that. We did have a freeze in 1985 that did tremendous sudden drop of temperatures when we had really not had a lot of cold. But that's the last time that happened in 1985. I got damage on things like tea olives that I'd never seen cold damage on before. Then not only that, we had a late freeze. We had a really warm February. Everything leafed out. In mid-March, we had a really hard late freeze for that time. It teaches you that sometimes life isn't easy. (laughs) Even with the things that you get joy out of and love, there's a lot of anguish. Sometimes you just want to throw your hands up. Then you get a drought on top of that. I do see over time that I feel like our climate has changed. I water a lot more. We have more extremes, more heat in these extreme dips. 
when you garden in the same place for 43 years, I'm a weather geek too, you see the changes. Can't get really upset, which you do, but you look at it when you lose a plant that it's another opportunity. And I've had so many droughts where it has really changed my garden. But you just keep your chin up and you find that joy in growing something a little different. I've quit growing blue hydrangeas. <laughs> I had a hundred varieties. I go through these phases. I went through my hydrangea phase and all kinds of cool varieties. But these late frosts, these droughts and hard freezes, it's just been a challenge to grow. So I've picked five that I really can't live without. I grow them in a big container right by the faucet. <laughs> what are your future plans for your garden? I feel like I'm in more of a maintenance mode. I've planted up as much of the acreage that I can plant, but I've got this botanical garden as an outlet. I'm moving my creative horticulture passion to that garden. I feel like it's what the community wants anyways. They want a garden. It's for the public. It's for people, for education. It fits in with extension, what we should be doing. I've focused a lot of my plant collection on enhancing longleaf botanical gardens. We're going to propagate all my camellias, and we're going to do a camellia garden there. We've already picked out the site, and I've got a head start. I've got 450 varieties we can start working with. I feel like my, wow. I'm in a phase where my garden is mature enough and I can give things to recreate a bigger and better place. What plant are you in love with this week? That's tough because I've already mentioned <laughs> I've already mentioned Yumi Camellia and I've already mentioned the Schefflera della Vei. Oh gosh. You know what one plant is that I'm enamored by? In the South you hear people talk about monkey puzzle. Monkey puzzle in the South really refers to Cunninghamia, the China fir. But the mm -hmm. real monkey puzzle from Chile, which I just am, am fascinated by that tree. I even went on vacation to Chile just to see those and the Chilean wine palms in the wild. I just love those two plants. They say you can't grow it here. I tried, and they actually did pretty good. I lost them to voles. I have a horrible vole issue. But now I am back to trying it again. I went to a local nursery, and lo and behold, they had two-gallon monkey puzzle trees. I am just ecstatic to get that thing planted in my garden in a special spot. <laughs> and I want to grow the true monkey puzzle. They are so bizarre. To me, they look like something out of Dr. Seuss. They are sticky and spiny. I have some of my volunteers tell me that if it doesn't bite you or make you bleed, that I don't like it. I do have an affinity for <laughs> yuccas and agaves and cactus and things that do have a lot of spines. I don't know why, but I actually do. There's a whole garden, danger garden out in the West Coast. I just love that idea. The monkey puzzle right now is the thing I'm fixated on. I was on vacation for two weeks during Christmas. Extension shuts down with the university. That's my planning time. I always do all my planning during the winter, during that time, but we've been so dry. I can't plan. I won't be able to keep the things watered until we get a couple of good rains. That's the one that's on my mind. I've got an area picked out, but not the right spot. If you want a good garden challenge and you want to try to grow something and don't mind investing a little money, because I don't know why they're so expensive, but they're slow growing. I'm going to start off with a smaller one, but a real Araucaria 
Aracana, the real Chilean monkey puzzle. Is there anything else I should have asked you? There's another plant I'm known for, and I've got a patent on a plant. (laughs) And it's Hydrangea Hay Starburst, which is actually a really cool plant that actually popped up from seed on my property. I've gone to countries, I've gone to China, India, Korea, and Guatemala looking for new plants. And one of the coolest plants I found was right in my backyard. It's a hydrangea arborescens, and it's called Hay Starburst. There's a patent on it in Europe. It's not patented in the U.S., but it's pretty cool. I've got it planted at Longleaf now, and it's a unique form with a nice, cool, concentrically double flowers on it. When would be the best time to visit that plant? They usually bloom in June when the oak leaves bloom. I love to ride around. I go out in the National Forest and drive around the mountain roads around here and just love to see all our native oak leaf hydrangeas blooming. They're all native. It's a weed in my garden, and most people are like, what? But anytime I (laughs) dig a hole and I plant something, a little ring of oak leaf hydrangeas seedlings germinate. I do love that plant. Of course, the other hydrangea arborescens is... Those two are so pretty in June when they're blooming. Do you have any thoughts you'd like to wrap up with, or you want to leave it there? I just hope we get some rain. Gardeners are so dependent on the weather. It's so funny how much we talk bad about the weather. But in reality, we should be working with the weather. And that's one Mm -hmm. thing I've learned. That's why I gave up my 100 varieties of blue hydrangeas. They were too much work and a little disappointment. And I can always grow a few of them and take a little special care. I always move on to something new and collect. I'm doing Saracenias right now, and those are great. Those are wonderful. Mm. I, I grow them in pans of water, and they just sit out there and just love the heat. They love the cold. Nothing bothers them, just as long as you keep a little rainwater in there, the beautiful blooms on them. There's always something around the corner to really get you involved when you're a plant geek. Mm. It's a joy to talk with someone and share your thoughts on plants and gardening it's just a joy to be around other gardeners too so i've enjoyed it thank you for coming on hey tell us how people may connect with you the best way to connect with me is probably online through the aces that's alabama cooperative extension website it's aces.edu you can also visit longleaf botanical garden we have a online presence at explore A-M-A-G, that's Anniston Museums and Gardens. I'm not there all the time, but I'm there part-time. Between those two places, you should be able to reach me. This has been Episode 145, Creating Dry Shade Gardens and Other Adventures at the Longleaf Botanical Gardens with Hayes Jackson on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Hayes. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.